Alright, well that's the wrong button. That's not where I want to go. I think this is it. Well, 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 stop that. Stop that. All right, there we go. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is Just Human number 218, and the subtitle of this might as well be Waking Up with Just Human, because I am about uh, a, a cup and a half of coffee down, and I barely feel awake. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I wake up as I'm doing this stream. It was a, it, it was a long night, and it's been a it's been a long night pretty much every night since we got these two puppies. They are agents of chaos and they are also agents of wonderfulness. Um, but sleep is a scarce resource in this household right now. So I am, um, I on defected on Sunday night. I was kind of in that sleepiness, like, or that exhaustion level where you're kind of, a uh, kind of giddy or loopy. Uh, but now I'm, I'm just fully exhausted and could fall asleep up against this microphone. Um, however, despite how groggy I am and uh, in need of good rest, I do have a lot of news to go over and a lot of interesting information that's right in my wheelhouse, wouldn't you know it? So, or at least it's it's right in my interest of wheelhouse. I don't know if it's in my wheelhouse as far as my expertise, but uh, we have some really good stuff to get to. Um, we're going to talk about Clinton Foundation, or not Clinton Foundation, um, I'm going to give a shout out to the Clinton Foundation whistle, whistleblowers. That's the bookmark I'm looking at. Um, the Trump versus Hillary Clinton civil RICO case. I decided to, I had a couple hours to like free of puppies and kids. So I decided to do a timeline um, 
thread that was a timeline and an update on where things are with Trump's civil RICO case against Hillary Clinton. And it turned out pretty good. Uh, there's not a lot of commentary in it, but I think it's, it was worthwhile to lay out the timeline in a thread. So we're going to go over that so that we all know where it's at and how the Durham report is factoring into it. And hey, it may not develop into anything, but it also may develop into one of the most important cases that Trump has going. Um, we also going to talk a little bit about some rumors around Hunter Biden. There's been some information come out since I was last live on Friday. I have a small update on Kolomoisky, just a, a small amount of new information about him and his case. Um, and then Ray Epps. We're going to get into Ray Epps and January 6th, which is probably going to trigger a lot of people, um, as I sometimes do. We'll maybe get into the F-35 stuff. Um, if we have time, we'll just see where we'll just see what happens. And then of course there's the, I have barely gotten to get, to get into it. Uh, but FTX suing, uh, SBF's parents, Sammy Whitman Freen's parents. I've been saying the whole time that the parents are the actual target here. It wasn't Samuel Bankman Freed who ran this complex money laundering scheme. He was just the face of it and the goober. Uh, that went on all these talk shows and whatnot and gave interviews and got highlighted as though he was running and he was the mastermind of FTX. No way, not at all. It was his parents. They are the political animals and uh, schemers who set this whole thing up and they were the ultimate benefactors of it as well. So really excited about that. And um, hopefully we have time to get to what new information. There's also new information that just came out this morning about January 6th that I quickly bookmarked. Um, an FBI agent, Stephen uh, Dantuano's transcribed testimony. I haven't been through the whole transcript, uh, but people are picking out some parts of it. And from what I've seen, it's really interesting. So to start, uh, we'll do the Clinton Foundation or the Trump RICO, uh, RICO case outline. See, I told you, man, I need more coffee. <laughs> Oh, I need more coffee. This is bad. Okay. Now, before I get into all of that stuff, just real quick. It's real quick. If you want to support the show, the the best ways to sign up for my Substack, it's just human.substack.com. Um if you are just interested in getting a free subscription there, sign up for free. That's great. I occasionally do articles, not that many, but it is where I put the podcast version of this show out through. It's, it's through the Substack app. I think it works pretty well. And actually, I've never received any complaints about it, um, ever. And uh, so in 200 plus episodes. So if you're interested in podcast version of the show, then justhuman.substack.com is the way to get that podcast. And you can set it up to send the podcast to whatever player you like, Podbean, Apple, Apple podcast, whatever it is you like to listen to it through, you can do it. You can send it or connect it to that. Um, or you can listen through the Substack app, which I think is a decent app. I also occasionally write notes over on Substack. So as far as social media stuff goes, Substack is trying to grow their social media aspect of the site. And I occasionally post stuff over there. So does my friend Burning Bright. So, but a paid subscription to my Substack is the best way to support the show. It's how the most amount of your dollar actually ends up going where you intend it to go. They take a small cut. So, uh, that is the best way. But another great way and a delicious way is to go to bensonhoneyfarms.com. Now, it has been a rep code just human, 
But yesterday she sent me, um, she told me she's changing it to a referral link. So, and I'm just now remembering that because I am that pro. Let me see if she sent me that link because if she did, then I will, let me see. You see, I'm going to add that link to the description of the show. Uh, so after the show's over, I will add the link to it. So BensonHoneyFarms.com, another way to support the show. And then final, finally, uh, the merch collection over at RedWhiteBourbon45.com is where I have my merch. And it's where I have my silly cigar smoking and bearded face on some coffee mugs and some hats and some shirts. And there's some other stuff on there like Program Yourself merch and whatnot. I will say the coffee cups are high quality and I do enjoy the coffee cup that I have from here. I think it's good stuff. So anyway, let's get to the news. First up, like I said, it's Trump's civil RICO case against uh, Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton and her cohorts. Is That's how I like to call it. Um, I do appreciate the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers giving me a shout out on this. That was very kind of them. And um, I respect what they're doing with their their case against the Clinton Foundation. Um, I would really like to know more about their case and read all the filings in it. But because it's a it's a tax case, an IRS case, um, it, there's all it's all private, or pretty much all of it's private. But it is. I do follow these guys. They're a great follow on True Social and on Twitter, now known as X, and their case has been going on for years and it's not dead. Um, it's still being worked out. And so they're, they seem very confident that their case is extremely important and, um, they've dedicated so many years to it and so much money and time that it's, I think it's worth following. And I, I, yeah, I have, I, I think, uh, I think they're right. And it's definitely, it was important enough that Durham sat down with them and interviewed them for hours about it. And about their experience at the Clinton Foundation. So maybe that stuff is in the classified annex of the Durham report. I don't know. Um, but I do appreciate the shout out from them. All right. So here is what I put together yesterday. And we're just going to go through this, this timeline. And uh, just so you can track how this case has developed. And I'm going to keep adding to this thread. So if you want to bookmark it either in your browser or if you want to bookmark it on X um, might be a good idea if you're interested in following this case, because as more developments come out, I'm just going to keep adding to this thread. Like I do a couple other threads that I have going. Um, so Trump v. Clinton and her, her co co cohorts, all of these people plus 10 name plus 10 others. See, it's like ABC corporations went through 10 and then names being fictitious and unknown entities. It's a whole bunch of people. Uh, March 4th is when it was filed. March 4th of 2022, Trump files a civil RICO case against Hillary Clinton and her cohorts. It's assigned to Judge Middlebrooks. You probably remember that guy. Um, not the biggest fan of Trump, but yeah, that's who he has this case. Uh, April 4th, 2022, so just a month later. Trump team files a motion to disqualify Judge Middlebrooks, and they cited that he was appointed by Bill Clinton, whose wife is the subject of this case. Um, the motion to, on April 6th, two days later, the motion to disqualify was denied. And Judge Middlebrooks said, look, I can't find any case law or any precedent that says I have to, I have to 
uh, that I'm disqualified from overseeing this case just because I was appointed by the husband of the person you're suing here, which you would think there should be some, like you would think that that would be a factor that would cause an ethical person to decide, yeah, it's probably best if I recuse myself from this case and let another judge handle it. But, um, he decided there isn't, and there isn't enough of a reason, but we'll see how that develops. September 8th of 2022. So many months go by about five months and, uh, there's filings back and forth in the case. Um, all of these defendants, all of them scrambled to grab, uh, attorneys and file motions to dismiss and, uh, um, file motions in support of the judge, all sorts of things right here. Motions to keep their information private, all sorts of things. It's going back and forth. And then on September 8th, 2022, Judge Middlebrooks granted motions to dismiss from the defendant. So each one of these defendants filed a motion to defense either on the, or to dismiss either on their own or they filed jointly to dismiss. So all these numbers right here that you see it says DE and then a number that's docket entry 225, docket entry 226, et cetera. And each one of those are in reference to various motions to dismiss, as it says right there. A lot of people. So Judge Middlebrooks granted the motions to dismiss, saying that, look, you guys haven't, haven't stated a claim. And look, it got to docket number 267 uh, whenever he dismissed it. That's how many filings were in the case. at that time. And when he dismissed it, he said like, this doesn't show a conspiracy. The plaintiff Trump is a no, I, th I think it's in this one where he said that Trump is a known, uh, uh, I could say spurless. What did he say about him? Frivolous, frivolous filer of losses or something like that. Uh, I want to find it because I think he's actually, he's, da he's damaging himself as far as the motion to disqualify. Um, plaintiff brings a claim for violations of RICO, predicated on theft of trade secrets, obstruction of justice, wire fraud. He additionally brings claims for injurious falsehood, malicious prosecution, violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, theft of trade secrets and defend trades acts, uh, violations of Stored Communication Act. The amendment complaint. The amended complaint also contains counts for various conspiracy charges and theories of agency and vicarious liability. That's what Trump brought. Plaintiff's theory of this case set forth over 527 paragraphs in the first 118 pages of the amended complaint is difficult to summarize in a concise and cohesive manner. It was certainly not presented that way. Nevertheless, I will attempt to distill it here. And then he goes through uh, all the stuff about it. We're going to scroll to the end so I can get his dismissal. Let's see, amended. Right here. Conclusion. He granted all these motions to defend, to dismiss. Fine. Where is it? Plaintiff added 80 new pages. The inadequacies with plaintiff's amended complaint are not, quote, merely issues of technical pleading, as plaintiff contends, but fatal substantive defeat defects that preclude plaintiff from proceeding under any of the theories he has presented. 
At its core, the problem with plaintiff's amended complaint is that the plaintiff is not attempting to seek redress for any legal harm. Instead, he is seeking to flaunt a 200-page political manifesto outlining his grievances against those that have opposed him, and this court is not the appropriate forum. Fundamentally, plaintiff cannot state a RICO claim without two predicate acts, and after two attempts, he has failed to plausibly allege even one. Plaintiff cannot state an injurious falsehood claim without allegations of harm to his property interest, and plaintiff cannot state a malicious prosecution claim without a judicial proceeding. But he unsuccessfully attempts to misconstrue, misstate, and misapply the law to do so anyway. Moreover, plaintiff's statutory claims premised on the DNS data rest on a misconstruction of the conduct laws those laws prescribe and the harms they remediate. Because plaintiff was unable to cure his complaint, even with all its shortcomings clearly laid out for him, and because most of plaintiff's claims are not only unsupported by any legal authority, but plainly foreclosed by binding precedent as set forth by the Supreme Court in the 11th Circuit, I find that amendment would be futile and that this case should be dismissed with prejudice as to the defendant that have raised merits arguments. Um, with prejudice means that he can't bring it again is what Middlebrooks is trying to do here. I can kind of understand what Middlebrooks is saying here in a way I can kind of understand because Trump, it does, it does kind of come across as Trump because it doesn't have the Durham report with it. Right. Here, let's step back. Let me, let me frame this up. So one thing that has gone on with this Spygate, Russiagate thing is that open source intelligence and citizen journalists and various researchers have broken down what Spygate was using all sorts of different material and documents and uh, whatnot, right? And then you have Mueller report and Horowitz report and um, various testimonies and appearances and hearings and they were transcribed in Congress. And it's all these different pieces of this conspiracy that was run against Trump. And, and a bunch of people have done tremendous work putting it all together, deconstructing what the media portrayed it as, um, and then putting together a coherent theory of what the conspiracy was against Trump and who was involved in it and the steps they took, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it hasn't all played out in court. There isn't one court case that brings together all of it or even major chunks of it. And it also hasn't been on the record in Congress that this is what happened. This is how, this is who the, who the conspiracy architects were, and this is what their plans were, and this is what they agreed and to do, and this is why, all that stuff. It's all been discovered and, and like people have sussed it out through good investigative journalism, but it hasn't played out in a court of law to where Trump and team can cite specifically that. And that's where the Durham report comes in. It also doesn't play down the Cong in Congress, just Congress has pieces of it. Right. So the Durham report represents one cohesive, coherent, deep, fully fleshed out, or just about it's as full, it's fully fleshed out as we have seen from any, any authoritative source, uh, a compendium of what happened and what was done to Trump and what this conspiracy was and who's behind it and how it worked. 
that's the biggest fullest telling of this conspiracy that we've we've had thus far but at the time that trump filed this rico case back in uh what was it march of 2022 we didn't have the Durham report so trump and them alleged things that those of us over that have been following spygate um we're like, yeah, that's totally what happened. Yeah, it was this person, it was this person, and they did this. Like, we read this Civil Rico, and we're like, oh, yeah, this is totally it. Because we have all of these news reports and and threads and all this stuff, all these pieces that we've learned over the years. But they're all from different sources. And Trump can't bring all of that together into this right here, into this one filing. So when Middlebrook says that you fail to to uh, provide the predicate acts here and claim the injury and all of this stuff, he's not exactly wrong. Some of this stuff was kind of unsubstantiated as far as Trump put it in this, this civil Rico case, even though it's a lot of pages, it tells the story, right? It tells the story, but he can't cite criminal cases against all the defendants that he's bringing this to claiming injury from. So anyway, Middlebrooks dismissed it. And it can, it can kind of be understood. So you got to think, why did Trump file this civil RICO? And a lot of analysts had said that, like legal analysts were like, why is Trump even filing this civil RICO in March of 2022? It doesn't make sense. He's not, it's not going to go anywhere. Well, on October 11th, 2022, so a month after this, after it was dismissed, Trump team appealed the dismissals to the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. So here this is, and he's he's appealing all of those dismissals were, you know, they're all for the same thing. It's different defendants, but he's bringing all their dismissals up to the Court of Appeals. On November 10th, a month after that, Judge Middlebrooks began granting motions for sanctions against Trump. And I gave two examples here because there's one, it's just like Charles Dolan filing for uh, sanctions and then there's others that are joint filing for uh, for sanctions on Trump. And what this means is that they're saying this case never should have been brought and it cost us time and money. So we want Trump to pay us for it. So Middlebrook starts granting that. And if you went to the docket and start looking at the docket from that time period, you'll see that there's just like motions going back and forth about sanctions and uh, Middlebrook's approving them. Trump team, um, I don't think I included this in here because it, it's not necessarily, it's not super important for the timeline, but Trump, what Trump team did is they said, hey, uh, we want to stay. Okay, this is it. This I did include it. Okay. Uh, plaintiff and plaintiff's attorneys, that'd be Trump's side. And they talked to the defendant's attorneys and they asked for a stay on the final order and judgment. So they, they basically said, hey, you're awarding sanctions to all the defendants. We understand that. Can we deposit? This is what this bond to be paid right here is. Can we deposit the amount of money you've awarded them with the court while we're appealing this? And then if we lose our appeal and all that stuff doesn't work out, then the money has already been put in, in a, in a place where you can then pay it out once the case is over. Right. But, we want to stay of all these proceedings and we want to stay of the or a pause of the final order granting these sanctions while we appeal at the 11th circuit, which is a reasonable thing to do. The defendant's attorneys didn't oppose it. 
got approved. Fast forward to June 9th, 2023. So now it's been over a year since Trump filed this civil RICO case. Trump team filed their opening brief with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It is here. It is 104 pages long. If you want to go read it, the link is there. It's very long. Um, then they filed a notice. Um, it's what's called a judicial notice, which means they're asking the court. So here's their opening argument, laying out their civil RICO case and their appeal. And then they also asked the 11th Circuit Court to take judicial notice of the Durham report. And when a, a, a court takes judicial notice of something, it's just that they're uh, they're asking the judge to say to acknowledge some evidence or some document, which is evidence, um, as being important to their case and to accept it and to uh, include it in their um, examination of the opening brief. So this is the first time that Trump's attorneys mentioned the Durham report. And the Durham report had just come out, hadn't it? That's from June 9th. The Durham report had just come out. So I don't know. It's almost like Trump and team were waiting for the Durham report to come out before they took it all the way up, you know? <laughs> it's almost like they timed this stuff. So July 13th. And if you and if you think about it, like Trump and them, when they filed the civil RICO case, I honestly, guys, I think whatever judge got it, I think any judge that got this, and I'm no lawyer, but I have read Trump's civil RICO case. I think that whatever judge got this case initially in March of 2022 in the district court of, of, of Florida, Southern District Court of Florida, Whichever court got it, or whichever judge, I think they all would have ended up dismissing it. Because it is like a, just a narrative complaint against all of these people spelling out the theory of Spygate without the backing of any criminal charges against all of any of these people except for um, Kleinsmith. So... I can understand. I, I think any judge would have dismissed it. And I think Trump and team knew that they knew they would go through all these motions and they knew they would eventually appeal, appeal it to the 11th circuit. And that was their goal. Their goal was to get it to the 11th circuit. I court of appeals. I think, I think I could be wrong. July 13th, 2023, the motions are granted. Appellant's motion, appellant of uh, the appellant is Trump and team. Ellen's motion for judicial notice or to stay the appeal pending obtaining an indicative ruling from the district court is granted to the extent that this court stays or pauses this appeal pending appellant seeking an indicative ruling below within 14 days of this order. Appellant is directed to file status reports on the 15th of each day. Um, so the what they're asking for the indicative ruling here, what that is, is that after asking this, the uh, appeals court to take notice of the Durham report. Trump and team went to the Judge Middlebrooks Court in the Southern District of Florida and asked for an indicative ruling based on new evidence. And that new evidence was the Durham report. 
So he introduced it first to the 11th Circuit as part of their appeal. And then now he's gone back to Judge Middlebrooks and said, yeah, we know that you dismissed our case. And we know that you said that it didn't have merit. And you're granting sanctions and all this. But we have new evidence, which backs our case and spells out the civil RICO that we narratively spelled out. Now we have an official source. We have the DOJ's own special counsel who has investigated this matter for over five years, writing a 300 plus page report that supports and corroborates what we have alleged from the filing. The recent release of the Durham report seismically alters the legal landscape of this case. While this court previously held that President Donald J. Trump and his counsel made frivolous, factual, and legal allegations, the Durham report corroborates many facts and allegations about which this court expressed skepticism. In fact, it bolsters several allegations that this court seemed to dismiss as unsupported, not giving them the assumption of truth that they deserved at the motion to dismiss stage. Notably, the Durham report outlines the role that each RICO defendant played to harm President Trump and directly contradicts factual claims previously made by certain defendants before this court. This new evidence confirms the plausibility of President Trump's amended complaint and is enough to get President Trump past the motion to dismiss threshold. It makes any award of sanctions inappropriate. So they file that August or July 27th, and then August 14th, they file a motion to disqualify again, the second time they've asked for this. And now they can file their motion to disqualify based on um, Middlebrook's association with him being appointed by the husband of the primary defendant in the case. But they can also cite Middlebrook's comments from his motion to dismiss where he was saying that this is frivolous, this is unsupported, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. He still denies it, though. September 15th, this was just recently, just a week ago. September 15th, Judge Middlebrook denied the motion to disqualify. He mentioned it. He said, given the limited remand by the Court of Appeals, I do not believe I have jurisdiction to consider the, the motion absent further authorization. So this is interesting, and I'm not sure I fully understand this. But, you know, the first time he said that he he wasn't going to grant the motion to disqualify because he didn't find any precedent for it. He didn't find any case law that would support him dismissing himself just based on who appointed him. Now that'd be this one right here. And in, this is a short ruling. Let me find his quote about it. He says, it is true. I was appointed by Bill Clinton. Although former president Clinton is not party to this suit. I will give plaintiff the benefit of the doubt and equate the interest of the Clintons for the sake of analysis here. The law is well settled that appointment to the bench by a litigant without more will not create in reasonable minds with knowledge of all the relevant circumstances that a reasonable inquiry would disclose a perception that the judge's ability to carry out, carry out judicial responsibilities with integrity and partiality and competence would be impaired. That's, that's the standard that they have to meet is they have to prove that his ability to be the judge would be impaired because of who appointed him and who the defendants are in the case. 
He says, given this precedent, I am not disqualified from presiding, nor should I recuse on the basis of any appearance of partiality. The three cases plaintiff cites in this motion compel no different conclusion and indeed do not appear to support this his argument. But now, when he deals with another motion to disqualify, it's a bit of a different answer. He says, while an appeal is pending at the 11th Circuit, and after the appeal was stayed for the purpose of seeking an indicative ruling, sorry, I lost my place from it, for relief from judgment pursuant to civil rule procedures, blah, 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 blah. The movements have filed a motion to disqualify. Given the limited remand by the Court of Appeals, I do not believe I have jurisdiction to consider the motion absent further authorization, meaning from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Moreover, if the remand permits an indicative ruling, I would not grant the motion and do not believe it raises a substantial issue. So he's like, I really don't think I can rule on this because this is this thing has moved up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and they're deciding on this case right now. So I don't think I can actually make a ruling on this. It's not within my jurisdiction. The 11th Circuit has it. But if I could make a ruling, I would still deny it. He did bring this up. He said, the appellants asked the Court of Appeals to take notice of a report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations arising out of the 2016 presidential campaign, also known as the Durham Report which was publicly released on May 12th, 2023. Alternatively, they asked the Court of Appeals to, to quote, stay all proceedings so that the appellants may promptly rule, may promptly make a Rule 62.1 motion in the district court for an indicative ruling concerning relief from the judgment of pending appeal. Notably, the appellants did not ask the Court of Appeals to transfer any such motion to another district judge. That is notable. They haven't asked the 11th Circuit to change judges for them. That might be something that happens in the future, though. On July 13th, 2023, the Court of Appeals entered the following order. I read that one to you guys. On July 27th, 2023, plaintiffs and plaintiffs' attorneys' motion for indicative ruling based on new evidence was filed. Responses in opposition to the motion were filed by several of the defendants. They didn't want the Durham report coming in. See, guys, the Durham report is such a nothing burger that the defendants in Trump's civil RICO case filed motions to prevent it being admitted and considered by the judge. <laughs> you would think that if the Durham report was a nothing burger and a cover-up, as some black pillars allege, that the defendants in this case wouldn't mind. I mean, unless they're just making frivolous filings to just try and drive up the, the amount of sanctions they're going to get, which is possible. Uh, but they fought to have the Durham report kept out of this thing. All right. The appellants also filed a motion of earth also. Whoa, 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 whoa. Here we go. On August 15th, 2023, the appellants filed their first status report with the court of appeals while they reported the filing of the motion for indicative ruling and the briefing schedule with respect to that motion. They did not report filing of the motion to dis to disqualify. They haven't brought the motion to disqualify to the 11th Circuit yet. 
It may happen. It may not. The appellants have also failed to serve and file a motion to further stay the appeal within 14 days, is what he says. This is the second motion to disqualify by the plaintiff. On April 4th, the plaintiff filed a motion seeking to disqual- seeking my disqualification because I was appointed to the federal bench by former President Bill Clinton, the spouse of defendant Hillary Clinton. I denied that motion, finding no legal support for his arguments. No appeal was taken from that order. They haven't appealed that. They've just refiled it based on... Uh, they, they, they filed a motion to, dis, to uh, disqualify him again after the Durham report came out. All right, so he didn't go for it. And now, September 15th in the Court of Appeals, so it's the same day. So he denied this motion, right, to disqualify again. Same day. But in the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, Trump team filed this, and this is where my thread ends for now. This is the status report they're required to give on the 15th of each month to the 11th Circuit while the 11th Circuit is considering the brief that they filed, considering the Durham report, considering motions from the defendants. And they filed this. Additionally, appellants filed a motion to disqualify, so now they're letting the 11th Circuit know. The appellants filed a motion to disqualify Judge Middlebrooks on August 14th, 2023. Appellees opposed this motion on August 28th, 2023, and appellants filed a reply on September 5th, 2023. Likewise, the district court denied appellants' motion on September 15th. And here's the kicker. Appellants plan to promptly file a notice of appeal for both of these denial orders. Further, appellants plan to move to consolidate that appeal with this current consolidated appeal. So, and this is from Banal Law Group, who you guys have probably heard of, maybe through uh, General Flynn and work with him, maybe work with other groups. Uh, they are a very highly respected law group. Um, he also is including, this is where Alina Haba and Associates come in, also Peter Tickton. If you don't remember, the Tickton Law Group they were the ones initially brought in on the civil RICO case, and then Haba came in afterward, if I remember correctly. But the Tickton Law Group, I, I, what I uh, primarily recall from this time, that spring of 2022, is we didn't know who it was. Um, and on this show, we were digging at them, trying to f- find out. And I was kind of like, uh, Trump just hired this, like some locals who maybe know the court. And so, because I've never heard of these guys, and... Who are they? But then we found out that Peter Tickton has known Trump since they were kids and they went to school together like when they were teenagers and they've, he's written a book about Trump and like they, they know each other really well. They were in, yeah, they were, that's right. Cinco, they were in a military school together. So Trump is bringing in a friend of his for, who's been a lawyer for a long, long time, but they've known each other personally for like 60 years. And then he's got Alina Haba, who is great on TV and a firebrand. And then he's got the banal law group who are just like serious, serious law group. So um, anyway, they're going to, where we stand right now is that they're putting all of this together and taking it to the 11th sort of 11th court of appeals, 11th circuit court of appeals. There we go. And that's the thread. I know it doesn't have a conclusion for you, but that's where things stand 
with Trump's civil RICO case. And we'll see what the 11th Circuit Court says. I personally think, and I have thought since he filed it, that Trump purposely, and I think we, um, we talked about this at the uh, Badlands event uh, when I was on stage for the Devolution Power Hour, that because I think John asked me, why do you think he filed it so early? And I think he did it so that he would lose, 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 and then win. I really do. I think he filed it early to tell the story of the conspiracy against him. And then knowing, knowing he would lose, but he would cause these defendants to have to make filings to defend themselves. And he knew the Durham report was coming. And so I think he filed it ahead of time to lose, 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 and then grab the Durham report to aid in his appeal and to eventually get it into the 11th circuit. And where it goes from there, I don't know. He may lose again and then appeal it higher after some more information comes out. Like, I, I just think it's like a, he loaded this thing up early on purpose. Um, we'll see what happens. So if you're interested in that case, bookmark that thread. And um, I'll be going back to it more and more. There was some, I better get some rants before I move on because I'm so tired. I'm going to forget it. Truthful Mama over on uh, pill.net. Thank you very much for the can. And also H2O Maven. Thank you for the shades. Much appreciated. Hello to everybody over on Pilled. Hope y'all are doing well. And on Rumble. Thank you, got. Hey, it was a lucky dog became a monthly supporter. I appreciate that. Bootleg Salsa. Good morning. Thank you for the rant. Said, I'm glad I actually got to catch your show live for once. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, Buster Lou. And DZ Dork, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and Geezerman, yeah. So Geezerman says, plus the pain it caused the defendants. So yeah, I mean, it's inconvenience for them. Um, and, but it keeps all those defendants in the news. Uh, just like Buster Lou says, it gets more eyes on when on it when Trump loses, quote unquote. That's exactly right. Um, the media loves to report when Trump loses, don't they? And so they can report this over and over again, and they can have a laugh about it. But how many times have we seen that come back around and boom, it hits them right in the face and Trump is the winner in the end. Okay. Um, what time is it? Okay. I want to, we're going to do, let's do Ray Epps. Let's do Ray Epps. This is going to be my most controversial segment this morning, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. Uh, but I think it's important to get, I think it's important to uh, go over this. So disclaimer a bit. I think that the, the, the punishment, the convictions, and the sentencing, the sentencing of J6 defendants, people who did nothing wrong except for 
trespass and interrupt a joint session of Congress, but who arrived unaware that there was something going on, um, not, not, under, not understanding the nature of what was happening at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, but had been at Trump's speech and then walked over there thinking they were going to protest and kind of rally around the Capitol while the objections were heard. Um, but then when they arrived, you had a riot, you had an insurrection happening, um, and you had people breaking into the Capitol, interrupting the session, and were caught up in the crowd doing those things and ended up walking through and getting an un, like getting a tour of the Capitol without a guide. I think those people are being mistreated. I think that while they are literally by the letter of the law guilty of trespass and guilty of obstructing the joint session, I think the sentencing for them is far too harsh. I think they're victims of the circumstances and victims of groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and whatever other groups were there that were that that showed up that morning specifically to cause an insurrection and to specifically invade that building and to take people hostage. Um, I think so many of the J6 defendants are actually victims, but it's true by the letter of the law that they did obstruct the joint session of con Congress. And it's true by the letter of the law that they did trespass. So while their charges in most instances that I have seen make sense, the punishment for what they did is far too severe in my view. And I don't view them as criminals. I see them as defendants and um, I hope that Trump pardons them. Right. But I don't feel the same way about the people who showed up that day to cause the insurrection and something that has happened on the right is that we've been programmed to not say insurrection and to discount what happened that day and to treat it, um, to mock it, to regard it as being mostly peaceful. Um, when in fact it was violent and it was an insurrection, it was an insurrection against Trump though. And it was an insurrection against the joint session of Congress who were going over the obstruct the, or going over the objections to the slates of electors from the swing states. I, I firmly believe that if Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were absent that day and did not show up to the Capitol, that we would have heard many more objections to the slates of electors and there would have been evidence of fraud introduced to the congressional record and it would have been debated debated and who knows what would have happened after that who know, we may not have some of the slates may have been rejected or it may have all been accepted but at least we had a record in congress of the fraud and the reasons for concern about each one of those slates it's it's because of these it's because of these groups who showed up that day with a plan to do a specific thing, create a civil war. And it is one of the most disappointing and um, 
I don't know, frustrating things about MAGA media and alt media that they ignore this. They, they just absolutely ignore the fact that the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, in their own words, in their messages to one another, and from, from November all the way through to January 6th, their messages to one another, in their plans that they made, in their group chats, their text messages, their emails, um, and in their own words while it, in trial, in their own words at sentencing, all of them, like all of these, we have all of this evidence where they specifically say they wanted to start a new civil war on January 6th. The um, Oath Keepers called it Lexington, uh, which was the first battle of the Revolutionary War, right? They wanted to spark a new Lexington. And what you got to read into that, guys, is they wanted MAGA to be casualties. Their plan was to get, well, specifically, their plan was to take at least 50 MAGA people. Um, well, I'll say they wanted, they had several buildings planned out, federal buildings. The Capitol was number one, but they had other, other federal buildings they were, they were targeting if they could get enough people. They wanted to get at least 50 MAGA people inside each federal building and then hold them hostage inside that building and occupy it. They had a list of demands. They had a list of demands that they were going to ask for once they took these buildings hostage and took those people hostage. They wanted to get MAGA people who had no idea about this plan and would not approve of it if they did know about it. Certainly wouldn't participate. They wanted to get them killed because they believed that getting people killed would start a new civil war. That's what they wanted. They are terrorists. They are they may have an American flag on their shoulder. And they may they may portray themselves as American patriots and and show a Gadsden flag and Talk about how much they love Trump. They loved him up until November 2020. But after November 2020, they threw him under the bus because they said that he wasn't doing enough. And these people portray themselves as MAGA and as patriots, and they wear the right patches for it and say the right slogans and all that kind of stuff. But they're terrorists. And if it wasn't for groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys... January 6th would have gone far, far, far differently. So, I'm starting off with this article that came across on September 18th from Zero Hedge. Because in this article it says, a group of self-identified Antifa supporters, now it's important that they're self-identified, wanted civil war and revolution on January 6th. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Oath Keepers and Proud Boys wanted. So, Antifa, the Ukrainians that were there, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, they all aligned on wanting a new civil war. They all wanted violence that day. Which should tell you that these paramilitary groups are probably working for the same deep state. 
regardless of what flag they wear on their shoulder, regardless of what slogans they repeat. So Monday, September 18th, Zero Hedge had this article. Defendant William Pope of Topeka, Kansas, included the information about these Antifa, self-identified Antifa. They may not really be Antifa. Who knows? But I think they probably are. It's kind of difficult to tell because Antifa is such a loosely organized outfit, right? Uh, but let's, let's just take them at face value that they are Antifa like they say they are. But keep in mind, they could also be a different group regardless this is what they're putting forth. Federal prosecutors charged this guy, Mr. Pope, with civil disorder, corrupting, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding, entering and remaining in an restricted building, disorderly and disruptive uh, conduct, blah, 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 impeding passage through the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera. He faces a trial that's supposed to start in July 2024. According to Pope's latest motion, MPD officers made a traffic stop at 10.15 a.m. on January 6th of a vehicle containing three Antifa operatives. They have their names. Their names are Jonathan Kelly, Logan Grimes, and Dempsey McCullough. Shouldn't it be too difficult to figure out if these guys are really Antifa? Quote, undercover officers who stopped their vehicle said they had received reports that the individuals were carrying weapons. Mr. Pope wrote that no footage of this incident has been produced by the government in discovery. However, Kelly live streamed part of the police stop to Facebook. So it's right here from the Facebook feed. Mr. Kelly refused to allow police to search his vehicle. So they sent for a dog to sniff the vehicle for contraband. A little over 10 minutes later into Kelly's stream, a team of uniformed MPD officers showed up to replace the undercover police. These uniformed officers wore body cameras and instructed Kelly, Grimes, and McCullough to get out of the vehicle while they waited for the dog to arrive. At least two of the undercover officers who made the traffic stop were wearing colorful, colorful bracelets that identified them as members of MPD's Electronic Surveillance Unit, ESU, which gathered intelligence and shot video around Washington and at the Capitol on January 6th. Nearly 30 members of the Electronic Surveillance Unit were assigned to duty on January 6, 2021, some of whom were gathering evidence on crowd activity. Members wore a special band on their left wrist to identify themselves as part of the unit, according to MPD's 96-page January 6 action plan. The trio of Antifa adherents created a video of themselves singing We Are Antifa on their drive from Michigan to Washington for the January 6th events, according to a video exhibit filed by Mr. Pope with his motion. Let's get a sense of that. Let me mute this. Who knows if they're really Antifa? They could just be making this to make it seem like they're Antifa. I'm very willing to believe that they are actually Antifa, though. The U.S. Department of Justice has deemed the Grimes arrest relevant enough to the January 6th cases to produce body camera footage for the, from the officer who transported Grimes from the scene of the arrest to the booking facility. Oh, sorry. Uh, Metropolitan Police arrested Mr. Grimes in this incident, who identifies as a woman and uses the name Leslie for carrying a pistol without a license and being in possession of high-capacity magazine and unregistered ammunition, according to Mr. Pope. Okay. 
DOJ has deemed the Grimes arrest relevant enough to the January 6th cases to produce body camera footage from the officer who transported Grimes from the scene of the arrest to the booking facility. But the government has withheld recordings from many of the other officers who were there on scene during the stop, vehicle search, and arrest. Charges against Mr. Grimes were dropped a day later on January 7th, 2021. Quote, This lack of prosecution compared to other January 6th cases and the fact that the government continues to hide information about the ESU officers who conducted the Antifa car stop and body camera recordings demonstrates the government is intentionally concealing information about this Antifa seditious conspiracy. Such information is exculpatory in my case. I don't know if it's exculpatory or not, but this is useful information for us. The three Antifa operatives communicated using a server on the social media platform Discord. That server nickname Insurgents was managed by John Earl Sullivan. The Black Lives Matter activist who filmed the shooting of Ashley Babbitt near the House of Representatives on January 6th. Small world, isn't it, guys? What a small world. Mr. Sullivan of Tule, Utah, is charged with 10 January 6th crimes, including civil disorder, obstruction of an official proceeding, unlawful possession of a dangerous weapon on Capitol grounds, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds with a dangerous or deadly weapon, and other federal charges. He faces an October 23rd trial in Washington. So he goes to trial soon. That'll be interesting. Individuals using Sullivan's Antifa server began discussing plans to look up blueprints for tax buildings online so they could firebomb them by throwing fireworks into broken windows. In addition to this, Antifa co-conspirators on Sullivan's server began sharing tactical plans for attacking police lines using a Roman legion formation. Now, I seem to remember that there was Antifa chatter leading up to January 6th about how Antifa was going to be there, right? But then a day or two before or day of, there was Antifa chatter saying, don't go. I could be misremembering that, but I think, I think that's what I remember. And I think I detect multiple plans to disrupt the joint session of Congress that day. There was an Antifa element that was ready to cause chaos in the way that Antifa does. But there was also the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys element that was much more organized and had a, had a similar plan, but different enough that the two plans would interfere with one another. So perhaps the deep state or whatever you want to think of them as, who did not want the objections in Congress worked with multiple the multiple paramilitary groups and had layers of plans for how to interrupt it. And it just so happens that the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, them being the most organized and disciplined groups, showed up first and started executing their plan first. And there really wasn't room for Antifa to, to participate in the way that they typically do. Plus, we know that Proud Boys and Antifa fight each other all the time. So... They're probably not trying to like have these all these groups together at the same time doing the same action, right? Because they would just end up fighting each other, which would 
take away from the actual objective here, which was to interrupt the joint session of Congress. So all of these things can be true, that all of these groups were there. It just so happens that the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were the most, quote unquote, successful as far as their objectives go. And Antifa backed out. Not saying they didn't participate at all, just saying they didn't participate as fully as they were planning to. So, let me see if I want to go through the rest. Okay, there's not much more. I'm going to go through the rest of this. Mr. Kelly and Mr. Grimes were clearly conspiring with John Sullivan using Sullivan's online server. Mr. Pope wrote, on December 29th, 2020, John Sullivan posted an image of firearms and tactical gear on his Antifa server, along with the message, Civil War and Revolution. Well, that's really interesting because Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were doing the same thing. Promoting their idea and shouting to each other, it's time for a civil war. It's time for a revolution. Oath Keepers and Proud Boys also staged firearms nearby because they wanted to bring firearms. They had a plan to bring firearms into the Capitol to help them hold people hostage. Oath Keepers and Proud Boys showed up wearing tactical gear. and had more staged, staged nearby because they were planning for a battle, a bloody battle. And they called it that. They said they were planning for a bloody battle. In fact, if I remember right, the Oath Keepers leader said on in November, I think it was in November, said, we aren't getting through this without a bloody civil war. And they decided, we're going to start it. Best to just go ahead and start the bloody civil war is how the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys viewed it. At the top of the scaffolding on January 6th, Mr. Sullivan said, this is a revolution, mother effers, let's go, we take this. Mr. Pope wrote, after breaking through police lines, Sullivan, this expletive is ours and we accomplished this expletive. Remember him straining it, walking the Capitol, I remember that video. Sullivan then yelled for people down on the lawn to get up here, encouraging people to get involved. Mr. Kelly, who wore a beige gas mask and carried a baseball bat, was the last person remaining on the Southwest scaffolding at the Capitol and had to be removed by police. You know, that's what real MAGA patriots do is show up in tactical gear with gas mask and a baseball bat to a peaceful protest, right? Just like Antifa. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and Antifa. Mr. Grimes and Mr. Kelly posted photos of themselves and the crowds near the ellipse. Mr. Kelly asked his Antifa co-conspirators on Sullivan's server whether he should start blasting expletive Donald Trump on my megaphone. See? They'd all turned on Trump by then. Mr. Pope said this demonstrates that those conspiring with Sullivan had a general objective to cause chaos on January 6, 2021. In previous filings, Mr. Pope disclosed how an undercover MPD officer assisted protesters in climbing over barricades, etc., etc. Um... I don't know any specifics about Mr. Pope's case. He could be guilty as sin of everything he's, he's accused of. He could also be completely innocent. I don't know about Mr. Pope's specific case, but my whole point in bringing this up is to show you the alignment and to, to illustrate the alignment between the objectives of Antifa on January 6th and the objectives of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. And I'm of course doing that because Ray Epps has finally been charged. The feds have charged Ray Epps with a single count. It was filed as information 
which means a deal. It's not filed as a felony indictment or whatever. It's filed as information, which means that a deal has been worked out. And they're informing the court that there is, they've brought a charge against this person for one count of disorderly or disruptive conduct in restricted building or grounds on January 6, 2021. And today, Ray Epps is expected to plead guilty. He's got some kind of plea deal. Don't know the specifics of it yet. We may never know. Federal prosecutors filed a criminal charge against two, on, on Tuesday against a Utah man, previously an Arizona man, in, who later became the focus of conspiracy theories. Now, filter, filter out Politico spin here, okay? Just filter it out a bit. A former Oath Keepers member, actually he was a Oath Keepers chapter president for years, and was like the head of the Oath Keepers chapter in Arizona. So he's not just a member. He was one of their big guys. Was charged in U.S. District Court in Washington with one misdemeanor count of disruptive or disorderly conduct in a restrictive area. Epps is expected to offer a guilty plea to the charge Wednesday as part of a deal with prosecutors, according to an entry in the court's docket. Now, it goes through and it recaps the images of Epps. We've seen the videos. We're all very familiar with the videos of Ray Epps uh, telling people the night before what they were going to do. He was spelling out the plan that Oath Keepers had developed to the crowd. And think about it, guys. Like I said, their plan, the Oath Keepers' specific plan and the Proud Boys' plan was to get as many MAGA people inside the federal buildings as they could and then hold them there while they issued a list of demands. In other words, those videos of Ray Epps encouraging people to go into the Capitol the next day and take our country back, whatever, was him baiting them to be hostages and victims of the civil war they hoped to start. How evil is that? Is so incredibly evil. So incredibly evil. And Epps rightly gets a ton of hatred from MAGA and from the right. Correct? He's well it's well deserved. Seriously, fuck this guy. What an evil person. And then he shows up on January 6th and he moves barricades away. And he encourages people to go in. He, he directs other, other Oath Keepers with the actions there to take. He's definitely being a coordinator, isn't he? He's participating in moving obstructions and barricades and stuff. And then he's coordinating the insurrection that they're carrying out against the Trump administration and against the joint session of Congress. So, but what has happened... Curious thing has happened. People on the right and in MAGA and in the Anon community, you show them a picture of Epps and it triggers an appropriate response of condemnation of his actions on that day. And we clearly see him as an enemy, right? But then you show a picture of Stuart Rhodes or Enrique Tarrio or any of the other 
proud keepers are oath boys. Oath keep oath <laughs> oath keepers are proud boys. You show a picture of any of them, and MAGA has the opposite reaction and defends them. And MAGA media runs endless articles and and video clips defending oath keepers and proud boys and excusing them, but not this one. Not Epps. Oh no, he's bad. And we all view him as bad. But he was, what he was doing that day was the same thing all the other Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were doing. They're all bad. It's just that we have some very special video of Epps, right? That has been played in front of us over and over again. But the rest of those, the people he was working with, they were all doing the same thing that he was doing. And then what people also key in on about Epps is that briefly, he was included in the FBI release of photos of individuals they were seeking. He was included on a most want, a wanted list, right? On the FBI's website. But his image was removed pretty quickly. And so a lot of MAGA media sees on that and say, aha, Epps must have been a fed. Epps was a plant and he's the real bad guy. And the FBI accidentally put him on the website, not realizing he was one of their guys. He started the whole thing and he got the rest of them in trouble. That's not quite right. It's not quite right. So, I think Epps flipped. I think what this represents is Epps flipped. And for some reason, that thread isn't stacking right. Hold on just a moment. Let me grab. Yes, I wonder why it stacks correctly here, but it didn't stack correctly earlier. Okay. So, in light of Epps charging... It's worth revisiting a thread from December 30th, 2022. In that thread, uh, this the author of it writes that Kinzinger and Schiff, when they had Epps in for the January 6th committee and they were interviewing him, Kinzinger and Schiff need to explain what motivated them and staff to question Epps like defense lawyers questioning their client. Remember whenever Epps went in front of the uh, um, January 6th committee? I remember going over this thread on this show and I remember um, when you, when you pick it apart, they treated him like he was a protected person and it was kind of weird. And it came, they were, there was very much a lot of coordination between his attorneys and the January 6th attorneys that were questioning him. It was really weird and it stood out. And then remember this, this is from a political Politico article from January of 2022. Um, Politico was told that the reason Epps was removed from that wanted list that the FBI put out right after January 6th, in part, was because he was no longer an unidentified suspect. Rather, Epps had called the FBI on January 8th, two days later, and, quote, explained his position after a relative informed him that he had been the subject of a news report related to the riot. 
He called the FBI on January 8th, 2021 and, quote, explained his position. I think that that is when Epps started cooperating with the FBI. I think that Epps saw himself on the internet. Epps saw the video reports about himself. He saw that all this stuff going on, all all the OSINT that was out there on him. He was so quickly identified. And I think Epps was like, know what? This thing, because put yourself in their position, guys. The January 6th did not go to plan. January, they, they succeeded in interrupting the joint session of Congress. They did not succeed in taking hostages. They wanted to take politicians hostage. They wanted to take MAGA hostage. They wanted to get a bunch of people killed. They wanted the military to get called in. They wanted MAGA people across the country to take up arms. They wanted a new civil war, et cetera, et cetera. Those things didn't happen because guess what? 99.9999999999% of MAGA are peaceful people. We don't want a civil war. Trump doesn't want a civil war. Trump has spent the past like decade trying to prevent a civil war. So Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, while they succeeded in interrupting a joint session of Congress, which the deep state and the Uniparty are very, very thankful for, they did not succeed in sparking a new civil war. And so Epps probably realized this, this mission their objectives that day failed. And now his face is all over media. The FBI has him on a wanted poster. And so he called the FBI on Jan- two days later and was like, yeah, so um, let's talk. That's why his face was removed for the wanted poster. And that's why he hasn't been charged until now, I think. I think it's because Epps flipped on Oath Keepers and flipped on the rest of the people that set this thing up. The idea that Epps was a Fed, which is a loaded term that has basically lost all meaning. Like this, we people in the Anon and MAGA community throw around this term Fed and it it's lost all its meaning because it's so misused and misapplied. But Epps got labeled as a Fed because of the things he said on that video, how come the rest of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys didn't get labeled that? Some of them did, but guess what? They got charged. They all got charged um, and convicted. Um, Personally, I think it was a PSYOP. Um, And I don't mean to say that everybody who ever repeated it is part of a PSYOP and is being nefarious. I just think the origin, at its origin, the... uh, the the effort to label Epps a Fed and to call January 6th the Fed surrection. Um, and again, not saying that everybody who repeated this is guilty of anything nefarious. I understand why people can process it as that, but it's incorrect. And I think it was ultimately a PSYOP to undermine any evidence he provided against fellow Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and others.
I think they wanted to undermine his testimony and evidence. And they also wanted to create a shield by calling January 6th a Fed surrection. You're taking the blame off of the people who are responsible for it, which are Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. And yes, there were there were FBI informants and CHSs within those the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. And guess what? They got charged and convicted. Enrique Tario is the leader of the Proud Boys, and he was a federal informant and had been for years. And he got charged and convicted and sentenced to many years in prison for his role. But MAGA bought into this line. It's very easy to process, very easy to understand. Um, MAGA is already primed to hate DOJ and FBI and to be on the watch out for feds and informants and all this stuff, and rightly so. Rightly so. We have to be very careful of people fed posting, quote unquote, because there are operatives who are paid by the federal government by various agencies to infiltrate groups and to get those groups shut down, right? And to get people in trouble. Not saying that's not a thing. But in this instance, it acted as a shield against people discovering and figuring out what really went down that day. And even now, two and a half, how long is it? Two and a half years, however long, yeah, two and a half years later, Despite multiple documents, internal messages, witness testimony, admissions at trial, admissions at sentencing, Enrique Tario, the federal informant, the leader of the Proud Boys, at his sentencing hearing, said that it was true they were trying to enact 1776, which was the name of their plan for sparking a civil war. He said it at trial. He confirmed it all. They've been convicted. Despite all of this information being out there, people in MAGA still excuse Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and view them as quote-unquote good. But Epps is bad, even though they were all trying to accomplish the same thing that day. And the truth is they're all bad. They're all bad. So I think Epps flipped. I think the reason he wasn't charged before now is because he was giving information on the groups, on their efforts pre-January 6th. I think he was informing on all these other people. I think those other people know that. He's getting a sweetheart deal because he gave over information. He's a co He cooperated. Starting two days after January 6th, he started cooperating. I think that's why Adam Kinzinger and the J6 committee was being, were being careful with him. I don't think they were being careful with him because he was working for them. And there was like collusion between J6 committee members and Ray Epps. I think they were being careful in their questioning of him because they knew he was a cooperating witness and they were told by the FBI, you have to stick your, your questions have to be in these boxes because this guy can only speak to certain things because he's currently involved and ongoing investigations. Totally understandable why we would see that and think, see the January 6th transcript and think, oh man, this is really weird. It's like these people are, they're protecting him. They were protecting him, but I think they were protecting him not because he worked for them. They were protecting him because the only way they could interview him was to have their questions be asked in a very certain way because his status as a cooperating defendant. Now, 
something else. We have this story from months ago, April 6th, about missing January 6th Secret Service text. And we've learned since that certain Secret Service members were in communication with Oath Keepers in the months leading up to January 6th. And then we have this curious case of text messages sent by Secret Service on and around January 6th being deleted. And there's an investigation into that. I, you wanna, what do you, what do you want to bet that uh, Epps may have something to say about that? Wait, that's the wrong link. There's two stories here in this in this thread, in that post right there. We learned, and I went over it on this show, that Secret Service emails obtained by this leftist group. Yes, it's a leftist group, but the emails are the emails. Certain emails obtained by this group show the Secret Service was communicating with Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes. And they were setting up Oath Keepers to appear at Trump events. And then later on, on January 6th, there's communications from, I, I could be wrong, I think it's Proud Boys but it might be an Oath Keepers member, but it came out in trial. Um, it was either in a trial of an Oath Keeper or a Proud Boy member. Um, messages on January 6th about how the Secret Service would be happy they were there at the Capitol. There was a question about, there was like a question asked like, what about Secret Service or something like that? And the Proud Boy or Oath Keeper, whichever one it was, responded, I think the Secret Service are going to be happy that we're there. Probably because they knew that their leader was in communication with the Secret Service. So I wonder if Epps has any information about this. Because after all, Epps was one of the top guys in Oath Keepers. So now I get questions like this from Don and no disrespect to Don. Hope you're doing well, Don. Don says, I'm confused. I thought you were on these men's side. And I get questions like that. And I get questions like, wait a minute, aren't the Oath Keepers good guys? Wait, aren't the Proud Boys good guys? No. No, they're not. No, they're not. And I am very, 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 very. Very, very, very sus of any media person or influencer or journalist, whatever, who tries to convince me that they are. We also have this story that broke uh, yesterday saying the FBI lost count of how many paid informants were at, cap at the Capitol on January 6th and later performed audit to figure out the exact number according to an ex-official. So that headline is like, oh gosh, yeah, the FBI doesn't know who all, the, who all their informants are. But it's actually pretty understandable. Stephen Dantuano recently testified, and I can't wait to go through his testimony. There's a lot in, in it. Um, but one of the things he said was about how many informants were at January 6th, and they didn't know that there were that many there. And the reason is pretty easily understood. The Washington field office had asked FBI headquarters, quote, to do a poll or put something out 
asking how many CHSs or informants were here on January 6th. We're starting to get responses back. And uh, here he goes. Where is it? One paid informant from Kansas City field office was at the Capitol as the crowd surged inside and allegedly was in communication with his FBI handler, quote, while they were in the crowd, I think, saying that they were going in. They were they were trying to stop some of the action happening and they left and whatnot is what former FBI agent Stephen Dantuano said. And he was assistant director of the, the Washington field office asked how many informants the audit discovered were in that crowd that day. Dantuano would only say a handful. The FBI spends an average of $42 million each year in payments to confidential human sources, according to the DOJ Inspector General, which raises concerns about the vetting process for these paid informants. Now, there are various types of people who become CHSs, confidential human sources. By the nature of the work, a lot of them are bad people involved in bad groups who are being paid to inform on the bad things that group does, right? Some of them are good people who are being paid to inform on the bad things that group that they're involved with does, right? So the presence of a CHS at January 6th does not explicitly mean that they're a bad actor that were there that day. Some were good. Obviously, some were bad, like Enrique Tario. Some of them were very bad. But there's a concern here that the FBI CHS program is far too big because they had a number of these CHSs show up on January 6th and the FBI didn't know how many there were or who they were there with or what they were doing on that day. So all these news reports about how many CHSs were there and how many federal informants and agents and all this stuff, it all feeds this, this psyop that it was a fed surrection, which again, gives cover to the people who are actually responsible for that day. This also cites the John Durham report and the Durham report. It says these revelations reinforce existing concerns identified by John Durham about the FBI's use of payment use of and payments to CHSs who have fabricated evidence and misrepresented information in the past, like what happened against Trump. So Jordan and the judiciary committee are getting briefings on this. And the likelihood is that the FBI's CHS program is far too big and the screening process for who becomes a CHS is far too loose. Um, and it's, it, that's been made bare in the, in the, the Trump situation in, in Russiagate. And also in regards to January 6th, there were many CHSs there who, who were bad or informants. Um, CHS and informant are a little bit different of a term that most people use them interchangeably, but, it can be a little bit, it, the statuses are a bit different. Um, similar enough though. I hear my dogs going crazy. So I think I may have to end the show sooner than I want. Cause I don't want them breaking out of their cages and learn. I don't want them to learn. They can do that. Um, but so I'm going to wrap this up here pretty soon. Let me see. 
I know I saw a couple rants, so I want to make sure I address those. Okay, I think I went to the right one. Okay, so um wait, mom mom two four forty four, thank you for becoming a monthly supporter. Appreciate that. Music and fiction says the issue with the paramilitary groups is similar to the Masonic conundrum. The lower level folk are generally salt of the earth. The higher ups are all the corrupt anti mega type. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. Mom two four forty four, thank you for the rant. They say I like to challenge TDS. Riddled folks using factoids gleaned from you, Kyle, especially narrative-free ones like the Abraham Accord or prison reform. Thanks, MSM Berries. Love to hear you brainstorm other other examples. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think those are really good ones. Um, criminal justice reform can be a good one. Um, pretty much any military-related thing is a good one because Trump supported our military and enhanced our military um, and did a lot of work to uh, reorganize portions of it as well as founded an entire new branch, Space Force. All of these things are good for the military, good for the members of the military, like individually, good for the branches, good for the future of our country. And he did all of those things, building up our military, making our military better, better while at the same time pulling our military away from uh, foreign wars, didn't start any foreign wars, took out some bad guys he absolutely had to, but didn't get us involved in any... Um, other proxy wars and uh, all these things led to our, us actually being more secure. There's all part of national security. Those moves that Trump did, Trump made us more secure. Another thing, other things you can point to are his, uh, his executive orders against China and uh, compromised, compromised products coming from China, sales to China of U S technology, things like that. Um, executive orders that Biden has actually continued and enhanced and added to Diana D 11. Thank you for the rant and thank you for following defected and devolution power hour. I try to make people comfy. Thank you. I'm glad I could achieve that. Paula deplorable, just an FYI vodka and field of greens. Wildberry is awesome. <laughs> it's a little clumpy in the mix. You gotta shake, you gotta shake it. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> vodka vodka and field of greens <laughs> okay so this over here is about the pipe bomb and this also comes from uh, Stephen Dantuano the guy who testified through the Judiciary Committee former assistant director of the Washington field office I believe he was um Oh, and that's a good comment I see on Pilled. Um, Truthful Mama says, weren't they also being promoted to protect people from BLM, which caused people to think they were good to cause confusion? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, we, have to, we have to think back to how it is that we got a positive opinion of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers to begin with, especially in 2020. I remember in 2020 after after the uh, um, and dear during and after the summer riots, having a positive opinion of Proud Boys, and I maintained that positive opinion until January 6th. Um, one thing that 
I was talking to other people in Badlands about recently is that when you go to MAGA media, media on the right, they they portray January 6th in a very specific way. And it's, in my opinion, it's dishonest. They, they portray it in a dishonest way um, because they leave out videos and images of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and others fighting with cops and blocking security doors and breaking down doors and vandalizing the Capitol. Um, they leave out that Proud Boys and Oath Keepers turned on Trump in November of 2020 and started bashing him and uh, gave up on him. They they leave out the plan that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers had. Um, they portray January 6th as a peaceful day with peaceful people not doing anything wrong, just taking a free tour of the Capitol. They were led in, and it's it's a very massaged portrayal. Um, and it's a it's a it's a portrayal of events that day meant to hide the ugly parts of it. And then you go to the media on the left and they do the opposite and they portray it as very, very violent and very, very insurrection. And they blame it on everybody that day. Everybody there carrying an American flag was an insurrectionist, right? And they, it's, it's two opposites. And so they polarize their viewers and listeners to extremes and they are both portraying it in a dishonest way. And so the only thing you can do if you want to get a, a good or a, a decent view and understanding of what happened that day is to look at media from both sides. And when you do that, you just, you get a fuller picture and it's kind of frustrating because you realize how dishonest media on both sides are. Um, so and even now, I see Uncensored Abe over in Pilled telling me that what I'm saying is bullshit because the Oath Keepers had no plan, but they did. They did, Abe. They did, and they admitted it at trial. And it's in evidence, and it's in their communications. And you can you can literally read it. You can read it, man. Like, I don't get I don't get the why people are so defensive of these people. Like they tried to, they tried to get MAGA killed so they could start a new civil war. Literally the opposite of what Trump wants. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. You won't find me defending these groups. Not at all. All right, so but this 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 whole discussion is so loaded now because everybody's so polarized and emotional about it. And I think a lot of blame can be placed at the the media, the dishonest media on both the left and the right, who dishonestly portray the events of this day. Very frustrating. My dogs have stopped whining for a moment, so I'll do the show a little bit longer. All right, so this just came up this morning. I haven't gone through this tra whole transcript, um, but Stephen D'Antuano was asked in his, his interview this last, I think it was last week when he was interviewed by the judiciary's transcribed interview. It wasn't like a hearing that was broadcast, um, but he was asked about the pipe bomb. 
So this is pretty interesting because the pipe bomb is another one of the mysteries of those of that day. Mr. Massey asked, are you aware that former agent Kyle Serafin, that he talked with technicians working in this office, said that they were not viable, that they couldn't have been and wouldn't have exploded? Mr. Dantuano says, so I've seen the report from Mr. Serafin. I won't, I'm not going to discount Kyle's view. That's his view from wherever he sits and the people he talked to. I don't know who, t who he talked to. All I know is that we at the Washington field office received a report from the lab division, which are the bomb experts. I don't know what Kyle's expertise in bomb making is, but th that they were viable devices. So the only thing I could go by is what my lab said and not what Kyle says. That's understandable as far as it goes. Mr. Dantuano, this is from a separate part of the transcript, and I don't know what Dantuano is responding to here. He says, oh, God, no, I would never do that. I don't know what that part is about, but he says, I don't know why he's making comments like that, that he doesn't know anything about the case. Those are dangerous comments. So he never called me and asked my opinion, but I never released anything that was not truthful. So he's responding to something, but... This is where I want, what I want to get to. We might have withheld information to not alert the person that we know more than that, but I don't believe in this case. Like we were asking for tips at this point. Hopefully you can see on my face that, that we want, I want to find that person, right? That is person or persons. We don't know who planted those things, meaning the pipe bombs. Before I left, the same case agents that were working on this pipe bomb case from day one were working the case at the end. They were extremely passionate about what we were doing. We briefed the director when he came over for a visit in October about everything. We've put so many data scientists, computer scientists, going through every single document, every single receipt, every single component that was into that pipe bomb. Those pipe bombs to try to track down everything. And I hope the Bureau gives you a brief. I really do. Meaning he hopes the Bureau briefs the Judiciary Committee on the status of the pipe bomb investigation. But I, what I want to single out here, he said data scientist, computer scientist, going through every single document, every single receipt. That gets my attention because what receipts do they have? What receipts do they have? That's really interesting. I don't know of any receipts that have been acquired, but that that's a not a slip up, but that's a uh, you can read into that that oh, they don't just have the pipe bombs and then the surveillance camera. They must also have some documents and some receipts related to this individual or individuals who carried out this pipe bomb thing. And then he says. Another part, we did a, this is really interesting, that we did a complete geofence. We have complete data, not complete, but there's some data that was corrupted by one of the providers. So he, he, he contradicted himself. We did a complete geofence. We have complete data, not complete, because there's some data that was corrupted by one of the providers, not purposefully by them. It's just unusual circumstance that we have corrupt data from one of the providers. I'm not sure. I can't remember right now which one. But for that day, which is awful because we don't have that information to search, 
So could it have been that provider? Yeah. With our luck, you know, with this investigation, it probably was right. So maybe if we did have that, that data wasn't corrupted and it wasn't purposefully corrupted. I don't want any conspiracy theories, right? To my knowledge, it wasn't corrupted, you know, but that could have been good information that we don't have. So that is painful for us to not have that. So he looked at everything. This is, I mean, it's weird. Like this is like, I'm trying to decide exactly what he's saying. It sounds like they, they did the geofence and they have a ton of data for that day, but some portion of it is corrupted and it's causing them an issue. He said it wasn't the provider that corrupted it, but who corrupted it? How did it get corrupted? Pretty interesting. There's some, there's some corrupted data at play here. And how it became corrupted is pretty important detail because it seems way too convenient for just data that's corrupted that prevents them from figuring out who the J6 bomber was. Like that, that specific data is corrupted. Hard to believe that that's an accident. <laughs> then he, this, here's comments on the uh, sources in the crowd. Washington field off may it wield field office. That's where Dantuano was Washington field office may have had a CHS in the crowd. That was a drug CHS violent crime CHS that didn't tell us what they were doing. Right. Remember back to my comments about the nature of what the CHSs are. People have a citizen's right to go and protest. That is true. Even if you are a CHS, you can still go to a protest. We're not going to stop them from doing that. As you well know, we had FBI agents there. We had other government officials, People are there, right? That's, I firmly believe that's their citizen's right. So if a CHS was there and then we found out afterward, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were malicious, nefarious action by this FBI to put that person there. They might have just been there and then told us after the fact that they went. That happens all the time. We don't have that much control over CHSs. The ones that are working off matters, yes, but the other ones, no. That makes perfect sense to me, but of course, you know, media wants us to be emotional and reactionary to comments like that. And then his comments on Epps, who is going to play, plead guilty today. Are you aware of the Ray Epps story? Answer, yes, I am aware of that. Can you tell us, or what can you tell us about your awareness of the Ray Epps situation? I feel awful for Mr. Epps because he has been wrongly accused of being a CHS and I think it's ruined his life. Okay. So it's horrible. And to my knowledge, I know nothing about Mr. Epps being a CHS for the Bureau. As far as I'm aware, he was not a CHS for the Bureau or had anything to do with the FBI. Yet we've all experienced two and a half years of people screaming at us that Epps is a fed but there's never been any evidence that he was. See how this works? And then Epps is the bad guy for January 6th, but the rest of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys who he was working with, no, they're good and shouldn't have been convicted. But Epps, oh, he's bad. <laughs> it's so incongruent. They're all bad. They're all bad. All right, I'll get off that topic. Because people just get irritated about it. And I get irritated about it. All right, real quick. We do have some information about Kolomoisky.
Ukrainian oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky is under pressure in criminal cases. You know, it's kind of funny that I'm over here saying that all of them are bad when I keep getting harangued for saying that certain people are good. And like people like leave me troll comments about how you just think everybody's a white hat, but I'm over here pointing out how bad these people are. <laughs> like the, anyway, um, kind of funny to me anyway. All right. So Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky once owned Ukraine's richest bank, a TV station that carried a popular show starring a comedian named Vladimir Sedlinsky and filled a private militia, the Azov Battalion, to defend his home city of Dnipro when it was under threat from Russian-backed separatists back in 2014. Thank you, Victoria Newland. Today, he sits behind bars, awaiting the outcome of two investigations, and he is at risk of losing everything. Ukrainian anti-corruption authorities have opened a series of cases against Kolomoisky in the last two weeks, the most recent on Friday, as the Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, said it was investigating him allegedly embezzling some $160 million. So there's not just one case against Kolomoisky. There's a number of them. That sounds great. The news came to Kolomoisky as he sat in a pre-trial detention center in Kiev. Last week, the SBU said in a statement that it was investigating him for fraud and money laundering. More than $14 million between 2013 and 2020. Wow, that's a really interesting time period. Though he has not yet been indicted, the Ukrainian legal system allows a suspect to be detained while an investigation proceeds. Kolomoisky, who is believed to hold Israeli and Cypriot passports, has declined to post a $14 million bail, protesting that the case against him is illegal. I wonder if he has any trouble getting access to $14 million. Since Russia's invasion in February 2022, Ukraine's oligarchs have seen their influence greatly curtailed as officials have introduced laws aimed at diminishing their political and economic reach. Many of their assets have been expropriated in Russian-occupied territory or completely destroyed during the fighting. But arguably, no one has fallen as far as Kolomoisky an oil banking and media mogul who was once valued at $2 billion and was who was considered a close supporter with major influence over Zelensky. He made Zelensky. He made him. The comedian turned president. Zelensky starred in a number of shows on Kolomoisky's television channel, including An Unlikely President and The Servant of the People, which then he made the party, The Servant of the People. In 2019, Kolomoisky helped Zelensky win the real job, thwarting Petro Poroshenko's bid for a second term. Kolomoisky and Poroshenko, also an oligarch, had clashed fiercely. Kolomoisky has been under legal pressure since 2016 when officials discovered some $5.5 billion missing from Privat Bank's balance sheet, which they accused Kolomoisky, his business partner, Hennedy uh, Boholobov, and other top deputies of embezzling. The apparent asset stripping at the country's largest retail bank left some 20 million ordinary citizens at risk of losing their life savings. The government seized the bank and nationalized it, then launched legal cases to claw back the alleged stolen money. Zelensky's election has not helped Kolomoisky. Uh, by the way, Kolomoisky paid for Zelensky's inauguration. <laughs> but Zelensky's election has not helped Kolomoisky, and the perception that he is close to the president may have raised pressure on government officials or government authorities to hold the oligarch to account. In July 2022, officials in Kiev told Ukrainian media 
that Kolomoisky have been stripped of his Ukrainian citizenship for violating a law prohibiting dual nationality. Kolomoisky denied. Last week, officials at the country's uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, the NABU, said they were also opening an official investigation of a, quote, former ultimate beneficial owner at Privat Bank and five associates on suspicion of embezzling $250 million. Ukrainian media identified the former owner. That's Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky was also, uh, was once widely regarded to be untouchable. And he had immense wealth and connections. He was also one of the more flamboyant tycoons to emerge from Ukraine's first cutthroat decades of independence. A large man with a shock of wavy hair and a bushy beard who earlier kept a shark aquarium in his offices. But his days as a larger-than-life billionaire operating above the law may now be drawing to a close. Quote, I consider this era, this the end of his era. Boris Filatov, the mayor of Dnipro, a former business partner and political ally of Kolomoisky, who has since fallen out with him. Last week, when the first case against Kolomoisky for fraud and money laundering was announced, the SBU posted photos on its Telegram channel showing him surrounded by agents at his home signing documents. Later that day, Kolomoisky appeared in a Kiev court for his arraignment and was jailed for two months. You, where he is, that's where he is right now. Ukrainian media showed him a blue in a blue tracksuit jacket and dark pants being driven away to a pre-trial detention center. Kolomoisky has flatly denied the allegations. If convicted in the Nabu case, Kolomoisky faces up to 12 years in prison. See, in 2017, a London court ordered a worldwide freeze of some $2.5 billion of his, of his and his partner Boholobov's assets in connection with the Privat Bank case. See, this is why I'm wondering if he didn't pay the $14 million bond or put that up because he actually can't get access to that much money. I, I'm really wondering that because he's all, he's been... His stuff has been seized in London and in the U.S. Starting in 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice filed civil forfeiture cases against two men over properties they owned in Florida, Texas, and Ohio, which it said had been acquired using funds from Privat Bank. Guess what? The one in Ohio is where the Republican National... I believe it was the Republican National Convention was held. It was a Republican event in Ohio. I think it was the RNC. In 2016, was the the Republican National Convention in 2016... In Cleveland, I think it was the building it was in is uh, partially owned by Kolomoisky. Funny that. Then in 2021, the United States imposed sanctions against Kolomoisky and members of his family under U.S. law that allows penalizing foreign officials involving involved in human rights. Man, that sounds like an executive order that Trump signed, huh? Interesting. Interesting. I wonder. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Kolomoisky was, quote, involved in corrupt acts that undermine rule of law and Ukrainian public health, blah, 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 blah. After Russia initially invaded Ukraine in 2014, acting president Alexander Turchinov appointed Kolomoisky as governor of his native Dnipropetrovsk region. It was then that Kolomoisky financed a private army to fight Russian-backed separatists and called Russian, Vladimir, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin a schizophrenic of short stature. That's when he founded it is talking about Azov battalion right here, which means he worked with the CIA, which means he was working with the CIA, which makes me also think that Kolomoisky is a CIA asset. 
which I floated on Devolution Power Hour a couple weeks ago. All right, Kolomoisky denies the bank's money was stolen and it's filed dozens of lawsuits. See, in February, SBU agents searched Kolomoisky's home. Y'all probably remember that. That was in connection with tax evasion and that some $1 billion had been embezzled from two companies. See how all these cases are adding up? Forbes Ukraine estimates his wealth has dropped to less than $900 million. It must be lower than that if he's not going to pay $14 million to get out of jail. Imagine being in a, in a Ukrainian jail during wartime. I don't think that's where he would want to be. I think he would pay the $14 million if he could. Unless he, unless he reasons that being in that jail is safer than being at his home. I guess that could be a consideration. It won't, I mean, since, I mean, Azov Battalion is not doing so hot. So he may not feel as secure in his home in Dnipro after all the, after it's now become apparent that his puppet Zelensky is no longer his puppet. The case against Kolomoisky have excel cases have accelerated as Ukrainian officials pursue a high profile anti-corruption campaign. And Zelensky looks to signal to Western partners providing billions in military and economic aid that he has zero tolerance for graft in recent months. Authorities have cracked down on alleged corruption in the country's tax authority and military recruiting system. While the country's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov resigned last week amid allegations that his ministry overpaid for supplies in his regular evening address, followed Kolomoisky's jailing, Zelensky did not speak directly about the case, but he thanked Ukrainian law enforcement officials, quote, for their determination to bring every case stalled for decades to a just conclusion. He also fired a bunch of other people uh, recently, which I may look into and have some more on that uh, later tonight for uh, Devilish and Power Hour. But I think... Um, Oh, shoot. The thought just came, it just went out of my head. What was it I was going to look up? Oh, yeah. Storch. E-O-D-I-G. Storch. No. Storch recently met with Ukraine uh, folks right after Kolomoisky was arrested. Where is it? Yeah, this is it. September 8th. DODIG Robert P. Storch, who has mentioned several times in the drops, met with leaders of Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Unit. That's, they have a case against him. The Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office and High Anti-Corruption Court to discuss the importance of Ukraine's transparency and the OIG's oversight of U.S. assistance to Ukraine. I wonder if Kolomoisky is getting storched. I wonder. Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? Okay, I'm going to save the SBF thing because I can hear my doggies and uh, I think they've been in the crate long enough and I don't want them to have an accident in the crate. So, um, oh good, it's 1125. So yeah, yeah, ah, that's the wrong screen. Golly, there we go. This is the right screen. All right, guys, that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, Sorry to have not such a happy tone during part of it, but January 6th is pretty upsetting and I think it's upsetting for everybody. And I'm empathetic to that. I'm empathetic, empathetic to how upsetting it is, regardless of your view on it. Uh, it's a bad day. Um, but some, some portion of it is becoming more clear. And uh, 
yeah, I hope you got something out of the presentation today and enjoyed it. Um, I will be on Devolution Power Hour tonight at 1030 over on Badlands, and we'll talk about some of the same stuff, but also SBF and uh, whatever hap whatever else happens. So, um, yeah, guys, have a, have a great day. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. See ya.